When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome to the fifth season of None But the Brave. It's just incredible to us. Thank you all for listening. We're presented by Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McClain. So, Flynn, the Philly shows were unfortunately postponed, but it sounds like Bruce is doing better, and they've now confirmed the tour will resume Thursday in Foxborough. Yeah, that was great to hear. I'm, I'm glad Bruce has recovered and they're ready to get back out there. Now we're just waiting on the new new date for Philly, which hopefully we'll have soon. Now, one of the other things that everyone is waiting to hear, we expect there's going to be a fall release. There's been a lot of talk about Only the Strong Survive 2. There's been talk, of course, about Tracks 2. Bruce is actually responsible for all of that because <laughs> he, he talked to Rolling Stone. He talked to a couple of other sources. Have we heard anything about where it might be headed? No, just a lot of conflicting reports. One said it Volume 2 wasn't coming. Soul, the Soul Covers Volume 2 wasn't coming. And then someone said, oh, it still might be. So I uh, really have nothing is nothing is clear at the moment. And hopefully things will, will crystallize sometime soon, at least in the rumors. It's almost been exactly one year since uh, since first word of Only the Strong Survive League. So yes. I mean, any day now, right? I can, we, uh, we'll hear something. Well, we'll come back to that. And just for me, my personal opinion, I really hope they don't release only The Strong Survive 2. We gave the first one a real chance. I think you and I were higher on it than some other people, but it just didn't go over well with the fan base. I don't think it sold well. At this point, I think move on to something else, especially since the never-ending wait for tracks 2 <laughs> continues. It seems like... Um, Hopefully it's going to be time for that now. And well, Sony I, can't be in favor of only the strong survive too, I would think, because again, it didn't sell well. They just paid for his catalog. It's all covers. It can't be thrilling for them. Yeah. There's no publishing there for them either. And yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I got to admit soul covers volume two would be a disappointment. I'll last year. I listened to it a bit, the, that lead copy we got. And then, once it came out officially, I was like, eh, kind of over it and went back to the uh, the Nugs releases in terms of what Bruce listening I was doing. And, and tracks two would go a long way uh, toward getting me excited about what's going on. That is for sure. Yeah. And if tracks two comes out, we're going to go full force on that. So, <laughs> To say the least, gosh, you know, fifth year's the charm, right, Hal? We've been hearing about this since uh, spring of 19. I hope so. All right, so let's set up what we're going to be doing now, because obviously the tour is on a break, and also, as everyone is fully aware, the set lists have been very static. We're going to move off of talking about tour 2023 for the moment, and we're going to do one of our usual subjects, which is something that people have asked us about because they're surprised we haven't done it yet, and that is our look at the rising tours. That's where we're going to start tonight. We're going to go back to the beginning of the tour, the rehearsals and everything that happened from there. And then it's we'll see how long it runs and where we are. We're going to break at some point and then we'll come back and do more in the next episode. Yeah, it's funny. I just one of these topics I, I swore we did, but I guess I, I guess we had not. And it's one that we've got numerous requests for and it's something we enjoy talking about. That that is for sure. The I remember after the reunion tour, a lot of speculation about was that it or is he going to go back and make some new music with the Easter band and. Fortunately, he did make some new music with the band. Uh, got the rising first outside producer ever. <laughs> they went outside their little their little uh, usual production crew, and they delivered the rising, which we've done a track by track analysis of. Yes, and uh, and of course the tour, the live tour is where it's at. So let's uh, let's start in Asbury Park, Al. Yes, and it was a magnificent tour overall, and not to take shots at tour twenty twenty three, but we're going to get a real juxtaposition about what he used to do artistically with these shows, especially at the start of a tour behind the new album as, as compared to where we are right now. But you are correct. We started in Asbury and 
the album, oh, the album was not out yet. I should correct myself. The album was not even out. They started, he first set up in Fort Monmouth and then they moved into convention hall. And on July 25th, right, they did a short warm up. It was about half the show for a very select audience. Yeah, I think uh, it was all Sony employees, if, if memory serves. But going by the basis of what Convention Hall is, very thin walls sitting on the beach, there were a lot of fans outside uh, listening. And what I remember most was getting the set list almost in real time, almost like today. And I, and I kept getting more and more excited as, as we saw the show kind of develop. And I'm like, oh, man, uh, I, I, I can't help myself. I'm going up tomorrow. And so I, uh, so on July 26th, the next day, I actually did drive up, uh, took off from work and said, even if I'm just outside listening, I'm going for it here. And, and that's what I did. Uh, I forget. Did you get into that show? I did. Right. I okay. Did get I into there. that show. Yeah. I didn't see you until afterwards, but, uh, but yeah, we, I got in, went up with, went up with my friend Kathy living in DC at the time. And I think we got in about, uh, three quarters of the way through the rising through the opening, opening song. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're here. And then it was it was amazing. I got to got to admit there and seeing Lonesome Day for the first time after hearing the leak copy for a few weeks. It hit good. Prove it. It's it was great. I remember the guy next to me actually said, oh, the new stuff's good, but it's all about the old stuff. And I was almost the direct opposite oh. Oh. <laughs> at that point. I was so excited about the new album. Well, July 26, 2002, this was the first official rehearsal show uh, played to the entire building not a, just a very s- small select number of people like the day before and this was a a, a special day it, the album was not out yet now in full disclosure i had heard it had you heard it how i sent it to you <laughs> that's right <laughs> okay all right let's get let's get all that right. straight i sent it to you and yeah all we right. had it a few well, weeks earlier well and a lot of people had heard it because yes. People yes. were very familiar with the new material, which would become part of the story. We'll get to Mary's place in a moment. But the show opened. It was very powerful. The show that he put together, and of course, this was nine months, 10 months after 9-11 had occurred. And it really spoke to the times, to the location. And I, I thought the show he put together at the very start of the tour as you noted, open with the rising lonesome day and then prove it all night and the fuse, which is such an underplayed song. And I thought live, it, it was just tremendous. What did you think? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was had extra powers. I mean, I can see where, where the album version might've been a little bit too restrained, but in a live setting with the crowd there, especially the response to the uh, bittersweet taste on my tongue line, it, uh, it, it was, it was pretty powerful. I, I I'd admit that. What I thought was interesting was that it was more or less modeled on the on the reunion tour set list. There were five rockers to start the show, then a couple of purely acoustic song "Empty Sky," and then then you're missing, and and then it kind of went back to because you're missing so intense and went to Sunny Day and Promised Land. But then I felt like Worlds Apart through Mary's Place was basically the five-pack uh, yes. 2002 version. Uh, I think Worlds Apart basically acted as both Youngstown and Murder Incorporated. And then there were some nights, I think, uh, before too long, Badlands uh, appeared after Worlds Apart. And so the that kind of comparison really submitted itself. Totally agree. And on this first night, he actually did 10th Avenue, which really <laughs> made that point clearer he ultimately lost 10th Avenue because quite honestly, Mary's place and 10th Avenue back to back there was sort of hitting the same <laughs> note. My memory of 10th Avenue is that when he, when he didn't stop it after, uh, after the bridge and go into the big spiel, when he just went straight into the big man joined the band line, my friend Kathy and I, we like high five. We're like, thank goodness. <laughs> We're ready for that song to be more in its original compact arrangement. Well, Mary's Place, as I was saying a couple of minutes ago, I think was the fan favorite at that moment. And and Bruce was very surprised when people were singing the lines back to him in Mary's Place, a song that hadn't been officially released yet. (laughs) He was like, oh, wait, you guys have heard it? I thought that happened on Sunny Day as well. Uh, he was oh, already, maybe it did. I was, specifically there, remember on Mary's place. Okay, I I, I got to be honest. My memories of that day are a little bit a uh, little bit hazy the, at this point. But 
there were some things I do remember, like I said, at 10th Avenue and, and the fuse and the guys next to me during Prove It. I, mean, I remember walking on air coming out of that show. I thought it was, I, I was, I was so excited. It was definitely one of the best rehearsal shows we've seen. There was just a feeling about it that was different than some of the other shows. I think of even like 2009, the Working on a Dream shows. Well, those shows, there were a couple of rehearsal shows later on where the show didn't work very well, which he knew. Uh, and then he would alter the show. This show worked from the start. Well, it worked until they got to the Petalands, but that's jumping ahead a bit. But well, it actually it worked fully as a set list and as as a narrative, and I, I think just as a concert. Whatever the problems that we're going to discuss come opening night at the Meadowlands, but here it was it was phenomenal. Well, the problems at the Meadowlands had nothing to do with with the set list in and of itself. That uh, let's let's not kid ourselves there. But yeah, he did bring out quite the set list that that stuck around. I think that's it was basically that was the set for the entirety of the tour, and maybe it was because he modeled it so much on on the reunion set and the fact that he relied on so many new songs and they were excellent new songs. Uh, it was I love the rising. I'm pretty sure you you, you do too, mm-hmm. and it. He was able to really fit things in the waiting the sunny day into Promise Land into Worlds Apart that worked really, really well, and it just kept going from there. Eleven new songs from the Rising plus American Skin. You don't and really see dreams. a lot of artists do that. And Land of Hope and Dreams. You don't see a lot of artists do that. Certainly, as we know, Bruce is not doing it anymore, and it was it was very compelling as we'll talk about, it was the set that he, he really didn't change very much at all through, through the first month of the tour. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about wild cards and songs being rotated in or out. They, uh, but the backbone of, of the set was here and, uh, it worked really well. And I'm, I'm surprised you call that a really good rehearsal show. Cause I thought the one on the 30th was even better. Well, we're going to get to that. I thought all of the rising rehearsal shows in, general were superb and probably the best ones that have taken place. I think back to magic and working on a dream, they certainly were nowhere near as good as, as these, this had a significantly different feel from the reunion shows because of course there was this stellar new album that we had already all heard. And uh, I think people wanted to hear the new material, right? Absolutely. That's what I was there for. And I wanted to hear what would what would be the set closer and what was going to be the the big band intro number. Those are the things that that I wanted to know. Those were those are my questions as I walked in and and certainly how great uh, some of the stuff really sounded. I love Sunny Day on the album. I still do. And so uh, it was interesting to hear what, what he did with it then and and Worlds Apart as well. That was one of my faves on the album. And it's kind of faded over time. But I was really excited to hear it hear it live. So that was Friday, July 26th. We came back to Asbury on July 30th, truly one of the crazier days of my life, at least in terms of seeing concerts, because it started, I met your wife, I, it must have been at like 5 a.m. I know we had to be in the venue, I think by, it was like 6 or 6.30, and I, of course, was still a little bit on L.A. time. And I was so tired that morning when we entered Convention Hall. Who would have ever thought they were going to be in Convention Hall at that hour? And wow, that was a wild day. Uh, I didn't get into the uh, into, into the morning show, so uh, you'll have to you'll have to pick up on that. Obviously, I've seen it, but uh, you'll have to talk about the experience of being inside the building and not outside. It- it was a lot of fun. I was in the bathroom splashing water on my face when I heard Bruce on stage tuning his guitar, saying that he was going to come out and warm us up. And then the next thing I knew, Does This Bus Stop was being played. I ran back out and uh, to Claudine. And then he did For You and, and a very nice version of Waiting on a Sunny Day, where Nils, Patty, Gary, and Clarence all came out. And then he said he was going to go back and get ready. He also made several references to it not being a rock and roll hour for him. And then they went live on the Today Show and introduced the rising material to the world. And and it may have been very early for them, but they were on the rising, lonesome day, glory days, and, and especially into the fire. 
I thought it was just great. And I, I think the public really embraced the record. And as we know, it opened at number one. Yes, I thought it was uh, he chose the right songs to introduce introduce the album and, and introduce the tour to, to fans uh, uh, nationwide. Certainly opening with The Rising into Lonesome Day. That said, that was the uh, the thesis statement for the for the tour, basically, and and Glory Days basically it hadn't been played at all on the reunion tour. So I guess he had gotten far away enough from his mindset in ninety nine two thousand of I'm not going to play the hit singles from Born in the USA. I'm just going to stick with the album tracks. But he brought Glory Days back, and it was fun. I got my PJs under my or got my pajamas underneath my clothes. I think that was the line, and then of course into the fire just hit home for, for everybody, everybody who saw what happened on nine 11. And here was a, an excellent song about it. And on national television, it was, I don't want to call it a national healing moment, but maybe for some of us, it was. We neglected to point out that at the July 26th show, there was a bagpipes intro played by Clarence tin to the fire. That was not done on the today show, but that's going to become highly relevant now as we head into the afternoon of July 30th, a blazing hot day. We were online in that field. I remember I bought ice packs and I had them on my neck. It, it must've been like a hundred degrees and it was just, it was broiling. It was freaking hot. <laughs> <laughs> That is for sure. And there was, and, and it wasn't even announced. It was just kind of like known. Uh, $20 at the door. What? $20 at the door. Yeah. And it just seemed like he hadn't, it wasn't announced. And I, I kept calling it the great Bruce Mines rhymes with stuck. And because he had announced it, yeah, here we all are. We had no idea what it would take to get in. Uh, there were some rumors that if you went to some local shops uh, in Asbury and bought something and showed your receipt, you would get preference to getting in. It was very weird, uh, very weird that day. Uh, I, I escaped the heat by hanging out in the lobby of the Berkeley. So uh, I was OK with that, but it was all worth it for the show. It was it was even better than uh, four days prior. It was. This probably was the best of the rehearsal shows played at Convention Hall. The show opened again with Rising and Lonesome Day, and then in the third slot, which hadn't been played in 10 years at that point, well, nine years, I guess, since 93, Cover Me in a compact version without the intro and outro, and the minute it started and the way they played it, my hair stood up <laughs> on my neck. It was like, yes, this is the song. This is, this is rock and roll, and it was, it was tremendous. I, I kind of lost my shit. I got I got to admit there when, when he went into that, because I, I thought a, a compact, as you said, tight version of that one was overdue to, due to be played. And he did it and it worked quite well. It was interesting because at the first couple of uh, rehearsal shows, he did prove it. And then at this one, he did cover me. And at the subsequent one, he did Jackson Cage. So I guess he was trying out different songs in that slot. But he finally uh, settled on on prove it for the rest of uh, rest of that month or the month of August anyway. Yeah, it, it was followed by The Fuse and Darkness. It was really a good run of songs would cover me in there. And it was surprising that he didn't use it more often after that. But then midway through the show, after Mary's Place, he did My Hometown. And then in a moment that, again, should have been repeated more often, although taking a lot of concentration from the audience, they premiered Paradise. Mm -hmm. And how brilliant was that? Very. <laughs> yeah, that was disappointment that it didn't didn't get played that much at all that year. I think it was played what once or twice on the whole tour even. And but it was such a beautiful arrangement and it really hit home. I mean, especially at that time, talking about the, the last verse, talking about the what was basically a nine eleven widow. And it, the timing and the effect was was great. It was like I said, a disappointment. It wasn't played more often. Listen to this run of songs, Paradise, Counting on a Miracle, then American Skin. Now, we talk about narratives. That's a compelling one. And then they were going to do Into the Fire. This is where the bagpipes come into play. Clarence had some issues with the bagpipes. I think he took out a mic stand with them, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. It's such a, the bagpipes were such an unwieldy instrument. And he just, yeah, knocked over a mic stand and just, just didn't quite work. 
But uh, and that was the end of the bagpipes. Bruce was <laughs> like, "Get rid of those things," and they were never seen again on an E Street Band stage. And uh, interestingly, he audibled to "Born in the USA" right there after "American Skin" because they he wanted a moment to collect himself or for everyone to get settled with "Into the Fire." And they did "Born in the USA," and then they did "Into the Fire." That was really a, a, a colossal moment as far as him putting together a run of songs. And, you know, this is what he was doing back then. He he really, he wanted to use the new material, as we've talked about many times, to augment the older material and have the pieces fit together. And really, here he was doing it about as well as he's ever done. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. So I have two comments about this uh, post Mary's place uh, part of the show. And first one is that there were six songs done uh, in, in that segment from my hometown through into the fire. And he never did that many songs at a regular tour show. Uh, even if uh, born in the USA was going to be played in the encore, but was audible toward to, uh, to the second set of the main set. Still five songs would, would, would be a lot. And the second thing is, is yeah, you're counting on a miracle as being part of the narrative coming out of paradise really works well um i i hear miracle as being about losing your touch and your skin and, and all that so it's it's about mourning of a relationship where and and paradise is you have that last verse and yeah that's a that's a that's quite the pairing yeah and of course my hometown came before paradise and as we mentioned american skin followed miracle so i i think all of that fit together after they finished with into the fire he did Thunder Road, he did Glory Days. Now, at this point, because he had broken up the My City of Ruins, Born in the USA pairing, My City of Ruins was played, followed by Born to Run, which was the only time that combo was played on the entire tour. And then the show ended with Land of Hope and Dreams and People Get Ready. Yes. And uh, the encore, I think, what it was somewhat shortened anyway. I feel like, uh, no, but but it wasn't. Looking at it, there were, there were going to be six songs, and there were six songs here. But yeah, he was still... Uh, trying to figure out what he wanted to do with the encore. And, and certainly uh, USA and Delano Hope and Dreams, which he would eventually settle on, worked, uh, worked pretty damn good. You would agree this was probably the best of the rehearsal shows we saw at Convention Hall. Like ever or just in 2002? Ever. I'm thinking. <laughs> probably, because the ones in, two, in 99, as, as you pointed out, they were a little tentative. They were still getting their, their legs back under them. And in 2007 and 2009, he, it, I think you said uh, he was having trouble finding the show. And and this one, uh, he had already found it, and they just needed to hone it in on the performance. And But yeah, they were still rehearsal shows, so any, any mistakes are, are easily forgiven. We were back in Asbury again on that Friday, August 2nd. You were not at that show, if I recall. I was not. I had uh, seen two shows in the previous week. Uh, couldn't couldn't really justify going up another one, and uh, turns out it was pretty also pretty damn hot if if I remember hearing correctly. It was, and the show was hot as well. This was 
again, an afternoon show, and it was abbreviated. I think they were getting ready to depart the venue. So this show, the the encores were abbreviated, and also the main set was abbreviated. But there was a couple of very notable additions. The biggest, you already mentioned, Jackson Cage, which I was, when it started, I couldn't believe it. This was still the phase where we were really being surprised at points, and Jackson Cage was a song I really never expected to hear. Yeah, I, I was very surprised to hear that as well, and, and obviously very excited and hoping that he would make it a, a regular part of the show, which uh, unfortunately did not happen, at least for the first month and a half. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, it was it was a holy shit moment, I'm sure, for a lot of people, and and there were more to come, that is for sure. The other notable addition to this show was Backstreet's Paradise was played again. I believe that was the last performance of Paradise on the entire tour until that one acoustic version in D.C., right? I believe you're correct. I'm not um, not able to really look it up at the moment, but it sounds about right. I remember on the compilation I put together from 2002, it was that rehearsal show uh, from, from July 30th that I used. Now, what I find most notable about this about this show was that there was no City of Ruins. He did My Hometown, Born to Run, Ramrod, Hope and Dream. So a four-song abbreviated encore, as, as you said, and it's surprising that My Hometown made it in there instead of City of Ruins. I think at that point they were sort of working out sub material and my guess is he knew they had my city of ruins down and, and they were getting out of the venue and it was going to be a shorter show. So that was why it was skipped. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. They, I remember hearing that, uh, might've also been a thunderstorm approaching. Am I, uh, misremembering that or confusing that with another show that I don't recall in all honesty. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to, uh, the, to East Rutherford Hall in August 5th. Yeah, half so filled, they half filled arena. <laughs> they moved into the venue and they did a public rehearsal show, which I found very weird. It, it just seeing a show in a, I think it was more than half empty. It was more like seventy five percent empty. But seeing a show in that kind of venue, they also did not curtain the upper levels, if I remember correctly. So the sound was off because there was so much dead space. But it was it was a good show. It. it showed that they were getting ready for opening night and it was pretty much the set list we would come to expect for the first month. Now, what's notable to me is that basically in the first, I guess, through Mary's place, every song except for one were either from The Rising or Darkness on the Edge of Town. Did you ever, uh, what are your thoughts on that one? Oh, I, I think it makes total sense that he used a heavy dose of darkness next to The Rising songs to create this show. The Rising songs, of course, were in many ways based off the event that we had all experienced the year before. But as we've discussed many times, they're also much more universally themed, especially something like You're Missing, which could be about someone waiting for someone to come home on September the 12th, 2001. And it also can be about someone who has suffered a loss, their spouse has died of cancer or uh, some other illness. And then by adding in the darkness songs, I think you bring in that sense of isolation because darkness is an album where there is a lot of isolation. No, you are, you are correct. And, and I always think uh, of the sunny day promised land combo, which is, I guess in a lot of ways that that's a, that's his whole career right there. Everybody's being hopeful, looking for a, looking for a, a better day. And then promised land is just continues it in a, in a very different manner. Yeah, I love the fuse darkness combo. When you think about the the two people searching for a connection in that room, and then you come out and it's really, in a way, very dark, no pun intended, because at the end of the song, as we know, the character has lost the connection. His wife is gone, and he's going to be on that hill fighting for every inch that he can get, but he doesn't have it yet. And and I think that that's where we get into the next portion of the show with Empty Sky and You're Missing. Is that how you read it? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. The, certainly, I think a lot of us were dealing with with a darkness, especially people who had lost someone on 9-11. And that's, that's the darkness. It was in a lot of towns, and it was felt by a lot of people. And certainly, Empty Sky continued that, and, and then You're Missing, which is, one of I think, one of his greatest songs about loss. And the waiting on a sunny day, I understand, with children on stage and everything that has occurred since, 
people have become tired of it, including us. But in this context, coming out of darkness, empty sky, you're missing. I mean, it was very literal. <laughs> we we were waiting on a sunny day. And then, and, and as you point out, then it launched into promised land, which is pretty much the entire thesis of his career. <laughs> True. And then it goes into that kind of the, the five pack or a four pack now, but that parallels the one from, uh, from 99, 2000 quite well. As we're talking about it, I mean, the way that he was capable of, of constructing a show and the, the manner in which he stated these things to an audience that especially in New York, had had suffered such a a horrible collective experience. It, it's really quite amazing. I mean, it, you know, I, I think sometimes the rising, the record doesn't get the full amount of credit it deserves. This is tr- tremendous art right here. And we know he would do it again. I think he did it again on the Magic Tour, which we've discussed. He hasn't done it anywhere near this level as much since then, a little bit in 2012. Yeah, a little bit, but yeah, I think this this was the uh, the pinnacle of of that, at least in the reunion era. And of course, the question that always comes to mind is: Would there be a would there have been a two thousand two album from Bruce if it hadn't been for uh, for nine eleven? And certainly, the most uh, the more impactful songs on the record, "The Rising Lonesome Day," "You're Missing," "Empty Sky," they were all influenced by that. But then there were others: "Sunny Day" and and, uh, and what's the one about the uh, for nothing, man. They were already they had already worked on that one. So I, I wonder what it would have looked like uh, without without that awful day. Yeah, that's a question that's almost impossible to answer. Perhaps uh, we'll get a little insight into it if the recording sessions the band did prior to nine eleven are represented in tracks two. I, I think that would be very interesting to hear. Now that brings us to the first night of the tour, August seventh, two thousand and two. We're going to pick up the pace here a little, especially since the set list is going to remain the same pretty much for (laughs) the next batch of shows. Irony. But what happened on August 7th, 2002? (laughs) Because I often cite this as the worst Springsteen show I've ever seen, and I think some others do as well. It was pretty off the rails. Yeah, there were some sound issues. It didn't seem like they were all quite there. I mean... It's not surprising that Bruce would be a little tentative at the at the start of a tour, as, as I said before, especially since there were there was so much uh, so much new material coming into the show. But there was it was a little bit more than just that. Uh, the I don't know. This seems like I remember Steve having trouble with his guitar, and there were sound issues. It just didn't seem like uh, everything was going there. It was weird because the, I thought the rehearsal shows that we saw were, were excellent, and then they come yeah. into the first night of the official tour, and it's just they kind of yeah, kind of dropped the ball on this one. The whole band. We can't. I don't think we can blame any one person. No, I always thought that perhaps the moment got a little big for them just because of the horrible circumstances and obviously the arena is a few miles from ground zero and they were unveiling this new show and he had done all this press and just maybe on that one night, which of course we've really rarely seen, I think maybe they got impacted by the technical problems and they just lost a little bit of their edge and the show from there just sort of fell apart. It's funny. I'm reading on Bruce base and I'm quoting, not the greatest show to open the tour with technical and pacing problems. <laughs> that sums it up very succinctly. But it, but it's weird that you're talking about pacing problems because this was the set. This was the set that was going to that he they had done uh, four, four or five times already, and they were going to do another uh, another three weeks worth. So I don't know about if pacing is the right issue. Uh, but of course, I remember wasn't this Bruce's calming piss show where he, right before he came on stage? That I don't recall. <laughs> I haven't listened to this show. I probably have never listened to this show again. I, it was either here, either at this show or at the Philly show uh, in, in October. So <laughs> I have to go back and, and listen to at least one of those. As we know, there are no archive releases other than Helsinki from this tour. <laughs> but this wouldn't have been don't a choice be... for the release anyway. Even no, if they no, had... no, nothing from August I, I think would even qualify. But because uh, the shows did improve, they, they found their groove, they found their confidence. And I think from September on, they were, they were on fire. But, but let's keep talking about August. 
Well, very specifically, the tour opened at the Meadowlands. Then they went to <laughs> Washington, D.C., and then they went to the Garden. That was clearly no accident. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. They they hit they hit the spots. I was surprised that D.C. was so early. Uh, I was still living there at the time, and it was great to have uh, the hometown show be so early. But at the same time, it was like, well, maybe they should have gotten all their legs under them before they before they came down. But every I, I saw these first three shows, and I thought every one got better. Obviously, they had hopefully nowhere to go after the that first show at, at the Meadowlands, but the second show in D.C. Edition of Bobby Jean wasn't thrilled about, but uh, Born in the USA into Atlanta, Hope and Dreams in that particular city, I thought, I thought was was pretty momentous. And then at the Garden, I think it was a big surprise that he really didn't talk much. I think he said something about you guys have been on our, on our minds recently, without continuing on further. Uh, but again, it was it was a better show than DC, and this was the fir- one of the first shows where it was from here on. It was uh, this was the show. Yeah, and one of the things that was going on here, I think, was because they had the problems opening night and it was a very tightly constructed set anyway, early on, you were getting the same set every night and there were not a lot of complaints. I mean, there were some people going, when is he going to change the set? But people understood what was happening. It was different than, say, what's going on in 2023. Oh, absolutely. He was... Half the show was new from from just two years earlier, and it was a strong album. We were very excited about the album, and we were really getting into hearing them every night. I was already, you know, ready to move on from like the Promised Land or, or Two Hearts and Bobby Jean, but those songs certainly had had their part in this set. and And the new stuff, I thought, really that was a, those were the highlights for me. The songs were amazing, and it's. Too bad that so many of these songs have never really been played again after this tour. But these early shows, while they were less than perfect, and to to be fully honest, as we go through the tour, and if we were talking about archives to release, if they were able to access them, <laughs> at, there would be very little from this segment of the tour that we would be talking about in terms of releases, especially the level of the shows just went up basically show by show by show, then they were flying by the time they got a little bit later in the year. Yes. uh, That first month, they were still trying to get their road legs going because they had the new material and they were integrating into the new show. But as you said, every show got better. They uh, started adding some stuff uh, like Viva Las Vegas came in. I think you were at that Vegas show. Uh, well, in that Portland. was interesting because that was a very, very solid performance. And people who we were with, who had seen some of the other shows, because I had left after the Meadowlands, the Vegas show was colossally better than the Meadowlands show. And people said that was like the first time they really nailed it. And the Viva Las Vegas was thrown in. I think that may have been an audible. There we're definitely some people, I'm not going to name any names, throwing some dice on stage at some point <laughs> during that show. And, well, but from well, there, all... once they nailed the show, he started to loosen up quite a bit. Yes, he did. And at the next show in Portland on August 20th, Atlantic City made its tour debut, followed by Back, well, Backstreet's later in the show. It was played at the rehearsal shows earlier, but this was its first tour proper performance. And in Tacoma, August 21st, I think we have literally the biggest tour debut of of that tour. And it's one that still resonates today. (laughs) The rock version of Dancing in the Dark, the... With the led by the electric guitar instead of the synthesizers, and the the song was totally rejuvenated. It was so exciting, and you now, think were you, back, were you I, in Tacoma? Just, were you in Tacoma? I was not in Tacoma. I was not in Tacoma, but I, I would hear it at the next show, which was in L.A., and it was just what a burst of energy. Now, of course, Dancing in the Dark had really not been played on the reunion tour was played a couple of times in sort of a country swing arrangement, but certainly nothing approaching a rock arrangement. And actually really how going, it hasn't been played in the rock arrangement or in any kind of full band since 88. Right. That's right. Because of course, 92, 93, it was solo. Right. That solo electric guitar arrangement. And of course he never did it on the Joe tour. What was your reaction when you heard it for the first time? It was, it was like a totally new song. It was, but we still knew it. It was, it was something new, it was something familiar, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, as you said, a burst of energy. It really gave this tour 
kind of a, a new new personality, a, its own distinct personality that was very different than than the reunion tour. Obviously, I see that he followed it up with Ramrod, which he would do a number of times, which was not exactly a rarity in 2000. But the fact that he brought it, brought it hard, it gave it an edge, almost like an edge to it. And yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it totally. I mean, I still get into it today. It's just just not as not as special. I think also the way he used it, because Into the Fire ended the main set as it did at all of these early shows, and then Dancing in the Dark let off the encore. And again, Dancing in the Dark, as we know, is a song about isolation. And, and finding connection. And finding you're 100% right. It just works so well. And you look back on these days now, <laughs> I think we probably, at the time, we wouldn't have expected that Dancing in the Dark would pretty much literally be played in that arrangement. <laughs> From that moment on until the end of time, because that kind of thing didn't really happen at Springsteen shows. I mean, Born to Run got played every night. Everything else was pretty much subject to be removed here and there. But uh, it it obviously has stuck around until today. Yeah, I guess uh, Badlands was like one of the main songs and maybe Promised Land that had really been in the set almost I mean, almost nightly since since this debut in 78 and Dancing in the Dark kind of continue that with uh 2002 through 2023 <laughs> as i look at my calendar and uh it's and i think it's been a highlight for for people or a lot of fans really ever since maybe maybe we're a little bit tired of it maybe our little uh you know repeat goers uh we've seen it a lot but it still gets the uh the people in the upper deck really excited not that it's I'm, I'm trying not to be condescending i'm just trying to say the more casual fans really really get into it and it works really well in 2023. We have to be fully clear about that. Yes, the yes. shows I saw in Europe, the I thought the encores were great. The thing about the Dancing in the Dark this year is whether it was because of the COVID protocols or trying to keep the show a little bit shorter, you don't get a lot of the craziness where there's people on stage <laughs> for four or five minutes. So back yeah. in its compact version, the song is obviously a, a masterpiece and it works phenomenally well. Totally agree. Totally agree. So you were at the next show in, in Cal at the Forum in in L.A. I was at the Forum, and then I was at San Jose. And this was, again, he was back to doing sort of the basic set, although now Dancing the Dark was in there every night with Ramrod. And then... Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on one second. What do you mean yeah. back to the basic set? The, uh, what do you... There was nothing not in the basic set, unless you want to say the debut of Dancing That's made true. it... Right, you're right. Made it special because... Well, there there was no Atlantic City or Backstreets in those California shows, which had been played in Portland. Those were some of the first songs that really got, that became rotated, that slot, that darkness slot and whatever became, was between Miracle and Into the Fire. Yes. I I mean, looking at the Inglewood set list, uh, he did Counting on a Miracle, Thunder Road, American Skin, Into the Fire. So that that was a little bit different, not doing it in the encore. You're right. And, and and that's totally true. And uh, let's move on here. There was a show at the Hayden Planetarium, which was tied to the MTV Video Music Awards. I believe your wife attended that show. <laughs> yes, yeah, she did. I remember I, I, had a, I had a fantasy football drive that night, so I, I, I didn't make, make the trek up. It was also in the middle of the week, if, if memory serves. Uh, but yeah, it was the MTV Music Awards. I think James Gandolfini was the one who uh, who introduced him and uh, and they, they basically did a mini set of, of what they were doing. I think it was less than an hour, but the it was it got a nice little uh, soundboard audio release came out of it on the on the bootleg side and became one of my favorite listens just because it had had the good stuff I wanted to hear. If I recall properly, also it was it was a driving Video. rainstorm. Yes, yes, it was pouring. It was absolutely pouring and. I think Steve uh, Bruce said something about Steve not being a fan of weather because it was raining so much. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. And then the next night, they finished up the first leg of the tour in St. Louis. Again, pretty basic set. Downbound Train was played after the fuse in place of darkness. That's another <laughs> interesting selection. And then they took a break. Yeah, they. Uh, I remember at the time we were talking about nobody. There were no artists anywhere that were going to be playing anywhere close to, to the actual 9-11 date. And so it wasn't a surprise that Bruce basically took a three-week break that covered those first three weeks of September before they uh, they reunited in, in Denver for basically the start of the next leg. Yes, and the three weeks, he had been playing pretty much the same basic set for the first month of the tour. That would stop in Denver, and it never <laughs> happened again. It because, never let up. No, they, from Denver on, it turned into wild set lists. But they, it was still within the the uh, the overall backbone of yes, of course, of, of, That's... of that show of of the tour. It's not like yes. all of a sudden he was playing you know five songs from Darkness in a row or five songs you know, without anything from the Rising. It was the non Rising material that rotated. Uh, the third slot, which was often Prove It, was now Ties It Bind in Denver. The uh, the fifth slot, which was you just talked about, was Darkness, and it was Downbound. Now it was Candy's Room. And then the the spot I talked about earlier between Counting on a Miracle and Into the Fire, Racing in the Street made its tour debut in Denver. And then uh, they also got a debut in the encore of Alma Rocker. So he was uh, he was shaking it up. And then you want to talk about the next night in Kansas City or the or well, next show? I, I do. But before that, I want to make one point about what you're saying about the slots. This demonstrates so much about what we've been talking about this year where Bruce would have a foundation of a show that wouldn't change much. Uh, the Rising and Lonesome Day, you knew were going to be the openers. But within that, he had sections of the show where he had similarly themed material that he felt he could change, and he did change from night to night. And it made the show that much more compelling, in my opinion. Well, it became like, what's what's he going to play in this slot or what's he going to play in that slide? So you got to the end of, say lonesome day and you know so you find yourself racing is it going to be prove it jackson cage ties it by night all these songs that, that could be played so there really was a, a big mystery about what was going to be happening and it's really interesting on this tour how quickly it happened because yeah overnight we, practice well yeah a three uh, week overnight the, <laughs> he did have the break but it was basically like he turned on a dime he went from saying okay I've got this set. I really like it. I'm going to do it every night. And then suddenly he was like, okay, I'm keeping the foundation of that, of course, but now let's go freewheeling. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes they came and they stuck around for a while. Like, uh, like she's the one after Badlands and before Mary's place, that one stuck around for a long time. I think for the rest of the tour, uh, I think it alternated with out in the street a little bit. And then sometimes it just, they would come and go like, uh, Trying to like I'm a rocker. It didn't exactly stick around very long, but made a couple of memorable uh, appearances, including, uh, I guess, courtesy of our friend Jason. Yeah, but we'll get to that one. We'll in a moment. To, that's in, that's a couple months later. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So Kansas City, uh, five tour premieres. Night, something in the night. She's the one incident, and then the closing. I believe that's the first song after Land of Hope and Dreams. People get ready, right? Yes, it was. Uh, they did a cover of Kansas City, of course, topical for the location. Yes, that's one thing he would do. And I think we, we really need to talk about Incident here, not just because it's Incident's a great song, but it was the first solo piano slot. Uh, it was done in a solo piano arrangement. And that was a slot that really became popular with with us because he would do a For You. He did The Promise, uh, Tougher Than the Rest, Lost in the Flood. He did a lot of songs, solo piano, which... It was almost it was a nod to to the to to us to people who who would see multiple shows and follow them around from city to city. 
Yeah, that was something that people really looked forward to because not only was it variety, but he was he was taking these songs. Now we had seen Incident at the 2001 Christmas shows open where it was solo piano, but this was something that most people in the fan base had not seen, if ever, for a very long time. And obviously, I think because of the popularity of the main point recording from February 5th, 75, it opened that show and I think everybody wanted to hear it. I think there was definitely an aura about it basically caused by that one show and to hear it 27 years later, I think a lot of people were just, I mean, couldn't believe it. And they were just ecstatic about it. Then from there, they went to Chicago. I believe this was the first Eddie Vedder guest appearance. Uh, Eddie guested on My Hometown, which followed Dancing (laughs) in the Dark in the encores. There was also the, what? That's quite a swing. Dancing in the Dark, My Hometown, (laughs) Ramrod. Well, when you're bringing out one of the local heroes, I guess it works. Now, one thing I want to say about this guest performance is that he brings Eddie Vedder out for my hometown. I know it's his hometown. I know he grew up in Chicago and all that, but it was it took him until the next year to really utilize the his some of his guests uh, on stage. I think they did Emmy Lou Harris. She did my hometown in Birmingham, Alabama. But then the next year when she came out at Giant Stadium, it was across the border. Now, tell me which one was more interesting to you. I'm going to hazard a guess here, though, that Eddie may have been involved in that selection. It makes total sense. We know that he's a fan of a lot of the Springsteen catalog, so they could have gone any number of ways. But I I can't be critical of that. (laughs) Eddie Vedder on stage with Bruce, that makes me happy. Right. I'm just thinking of two years later when they blew our minds with uh, with Better Man. Yeah, that was a whole separate (laughs) issue. As Eddie said, he took the E Street Band out for a little test drive there. That was an amazing performance. And Chicago also had the the solo piano for you. So he was really getting into it at that point. And Jackson Cage made its first appearance on the tour proper. It had been played, of course, at Asbury. And then moving on to Milwaukee. No Surrender made its tour, de- tour debut, and of course that's uh, Every Nighter, or became a very frequent visitor in the set list for the next uh, 21 years, and the uh, a solo version of Mary Queen of Arkansas. This time it was on guitar and harmonica, so he was uh, digging deeper than than I even remembered, actually, in that, in that solo spot. And then, of course, the show ended with Little Queenie, which is a callback to the Bomb Scare show, the famous show where they were, uh, can we say this? They were a little drunk. <laughs> they were loose. Are you loose out there? It just, it cracks me up. And again, I we this is not about 2023, but there is such a juxtaposition because he was playing a very serious show with an album off of very serious events, as we all know. And yet he could find ways to be loose. That is the magic. And And of course, how old was he here? He was uh, 53. He had just turned 53 that week, actually. And he was at the top of his game throughout the rising tour. That's just, except for maybe opening night. But (laughs) this was a a, a tour that I think because of the problems with the archives, it's probably a little underrated and lost by now because they haven't been able to release the shows and give everyone a view of the type of performance that we've gotten from all the other tours, the magic tour, just think of the collective impact of the magic tour releases. I think that has really heightened what people think of the magic tour. I do Do think that anybody who got into them after the rising tour, they may, because of the lack of releases, they may not give this tour as much, uh, much props as, as it deserves. Uh, I think you and I, you and I love this tour. We, we give the the edge to the reunion tour, but just just by a nose over the rising tour, and and it's so disappointing that uh, they can't access anything as we repeat ourselves for the sixtieth time. But if there was any way just to release something on just two track or just something uh, from, especially from something from September of of two thousand two or even September of two thousand three, I think uh, people would really uh, understand what we're how excited we were at the time. Yeah, this tour deserves to be heard, but we've said that so many times. And as we know, 
I'm sure they would love to pull it off, but they just can't seem to be able to figure it out. So I guess there's no point in just going over it again and again, but it's so frustrating. Very, very. And then they moved on to Fargo, North Dakota, which they actually had played in 99. So it wasn't totally a surprise. And that's where working on the highway made it made his tour debut, which not exactly uh, a headliner after the reunion tour, but it was different. It had kind of a, a like a country violin jam thing going on in the middle, which I, I was just reminded of by by Bruce Bass. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was absolutely a lot of fun. Uh, the, the version from Boston of that song was just just tremendous. Then they moved on to St. Paul, which I'm actually looking at Bruce Bass. I never knew this. Did you know this? Restless Nights was soundchecked in September of 2002. I did know that. I did know that. I haven't heard it. I mean, I don't know if any of our IEM taper friends were there, but I haven't heard it. But the highlights have been big. Well, I I don't know. Obviously, it wasn't good enough to be played because it wasn't played for another seven years. Uh, and that was the only time it's been played ever. But that night did get further on up the road and Nothing Man and their tour debuts, which which were pretty big at the time. Yeah, those are two welcome debuts as he was working his way through the rising material. Of course, further on up the road had been played first in Atlanta and then at the Garden at the tail end of the reunion tour. But this is a really solid show in and of itself. You know, a single city where he probably wasn't going to return, and they got a very, very compelling show on the Rising Tour. So it just, I I think that what he was doing here was he wanted to make each show a little distinct. There was no reason that Further On Up the Road or Nothing Man had to be played there, except that was what he wanted to do on that night. And other highlights from the show include Racing in the Street and uh Another post Land of Hope and Dream song, Working on the Highway. Uh, again, not one that uh, would have made our headlines, but still fun and uh, notable for just for the fact that it's done at the end of the show. And now we're returning to the Northeast and he's coming through the home stretch of this leg and we're going to take a break. We'll pick back up next time with the European leg. But he went to Boston. This was the first time ever that Dirty Water was played with Peter Wolf. It was Three hours, the longest show of the tour so far. And he dedicated my hometown to Lenny Zakem, who had passed away a couple of years prior. And earlier in the day, Bruce also appeared at a dedication for a bridge named after Lenny Zakem. And he played Thunder Road. And and of course, the big weekend continued the next night when he played Saturday Night Live. And, and that was when he did that amazing version of, of You're Missing. That was stunning. When you think of going on live TV... And he wants to showcase the record. Of course, they the first song they did was Lonesome Day, which was true to the tour arrangement. But you're missing out of nowhere. He sits down at the piano and does this devastating take on the song. I, it, it was really kind of mind-boggling. And in a way, it was a shame that the song was never played that way again, except for the one time, I think, a few years later on the Devils and Dust tour, the only time it was played on that tour, right? Uh, in Buffalo, yes. Yeah. So, but the sense of longing and, and loss and the way he sang the song, especially considering, again, it was on national TV. Like if he had done that in a theater show somewhere, you would have gone, okay, that I understand for that kind of venue. But on national TV, what he delivered there was Look, that's when we talk about Bruce and the way he's able to deliver on certain specific moments, to me, the you're missing on Saturday Night Live is right up there with just about any of them. Exactly. It was just so, so powerful, as you said. And looking at it from another perspective, here he is. This is his first time on Saturday Night Live. And right. I mean, I'm not I'm not misremembering. Ninety two. Oh, okay. All right. So, and this is first performance with the E Street Band on Saturday Night Live. I knew I was forgetting something. They come out, they do Lonesome Day, and then the next time it's Bruce Solo. So you would imagine that they would have come out and, and rocked it, like kind of like they did later on, on, uh, on like in 2015 or... or, or Two thousand no twenty. 20. It was twenty. <laughs> my God, my memory is going. When we were locked in our homes, so I know yes. it's hard to remember. Yes. Well, uh, all the all the years kind of run together sometimes, but this time he just sat down and played that thing solo, and 
man, that took a honus. And I know he's got him and I know he knows he has him and and he and he really delivered on that one. Yeah, that that was truly amazing. And just in those circumstances, it, it really it just takes your breath away and that's again that's why he is who he is, because there are very, very few performers who would have done that. Yes. And he pulled it off well. And then the next night, I, it, as if- You were uh, there, right? I was in Philadelphia. I, I, I went up and that was a hell of a show too. I know we keep saying that, but damn, they, this run of shows was spectacular. Uh, they, the first big surprise was when he pulled that bus stop. That was the tour debut. And I think- how many times did he do that on the reunion tour? Just that one time also in Philly? No, he did it a couple of other times. Oh, I know he, it was played at the Garden. Yes, you're right. He did at the Garden. But he did Bus Stop. He did For You. Actually, I believe was full band. And then he pulled out Streets of Philadelphia. Not a surprise, I know, considering the city he was in. But it was solo piano. But he brought up uh, Lisa Lowell and, 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 and I think Susie and Patty contributing backing vocals which made that one actually my favorite performance of that song basically ever. And then he followed it up with, with a solo piano incident. So he was really hitting all the, all the high marks for me at this one. And I remember the kitties back that ended that show. I wasn't there, but I remember listening to it. It sounded like the crowd was going so bonkers. (laughs) Yes, they were. Uh, It was, that was the first time it had been done at a regular E street show since 78. And so, uh, yeah, people, people were losing their shit to say the least. Even I was enjoying it. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it was, that was a hell of a show. I remember, uh, getting a recording of that one, a good one and just blasting the hell out of it, uh, while driving, while driving around at, at the and time. The promised land was not played in this show. Uh, again, pointing out that in the past, certain songs, no matter how regular they were, were subject to be dropped from shows. There was nothing except really Born to Run that was untouchable. Well, what's interesting about that, and uh, I I was going to say this at some point, was that that slot, the post-waiting slot, became a a wild card, became a wild card spot. It wasn't always uh, Promised Land, as as obviously as 2002 wore on, and certainly throughout 2003. And at this one, you you got Bus Stop and For You, a, a double shot of Greetings. And and then at the next show in uh, not to jump ahead, but the next show in Buffalo, he did "You Can Look and No Surrender" there. So again, he dropped a, an old uh, a w- old warhorse, and he brought something like a rotating slot that you never know what, what was going to appear there. Yeah, and is it safe to say that if they could access the tapes, that this show from October six, two thousand and two, would make a good archive release? It definitely would. It would be on my short list. Uh, that is for sure, especially from two thousand two. But I also have a very soft spot in my heart for for Buffalo, and I wasn't even there. <laughs> but the fact they did that they did tougher than the rest that was the first time the, any tunnel song was done on the tour, and then a solo piano lost in the flood was that's a hell of a double shot right there. If uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, again, he was staying true to the foundation of the show, but. Within that, he was bringing in a lot of interesting material, tougher than the rest, followed by a solo piano version of Lost in the Flood. You you did also get the You Can Look in there. But I I just think there were some other interesting changes to the show. It went The Rising, Lonesome Day, Darkness on the Edge of Town, further on up the road. So the opening of this show is quite a bit different in feel than some of the other shows. Well, by this time, he had dropped a fuse. It was no longer an every-nighter. And even in Philadelphia the, the previous night, he only did four shows, four songs, four rockers to, to start the show. And he did it again in, in Buffalo. And yeah, you're right. The, to end that four-song set with Further was definitely a different feel than ending it with the fuse into darkness. Let me point something else out to you as I'm looking at it. The first seven songs of the show, six of them off the rising and then darkness. This was the type of thing, again, it, it takes balls to do this. He's in an arena. Now, of course, The Rising was an extremely well-received album, but still, you you just didn't see that from a lot of artists, and and he did it. Uh, I, I, I think there's something we're leaving unsaid there, but we'll <laughs> move on. But yeah, but you're right. He, uh, he had a lot of faith in that material. He came out six, as you're right, six out of the first seven songs, and then he does two, uh, he says, you can look and no surrender. Then he goes into another new song, Worlds Apart. 
And then he gets into to Badland, She's the One, and then, then two more new songs in Mary's Place and Counting on a Miracle. So he was really drawing heavily on the new album, and, and it was more than holding its own on at these shows on this tour. Yeah, crowds were totally into these shows. This was not a case where he was playing new material and people were walking out or anything like that. That no. did not go on. No, not at all. People were into the show. Sunny Day. That was people got into it from the get go. Um, I think even we were, uh, as I as I said earlier, without the any kind of kid karaoke coming on stage, he was kind of keeping it basically letting the crowd do all the singing. And it was it was a lot of fun. I really actually look forward to it on this part of the tour. Yeah, he had such command at that point. Just everything that he did on the stage. And and obviously that's why we went to so many shows. And that's why he's considered one of the greatest live performers, if not the greatest live performer of all time. So with this Buffalo show, should we break here at the official end of the first leg of the Rising Tour? And we'll pick back up with Europe in the next episode. Because sounds, there were also some really great shows in Europe. Uh, sounds good to me. And there were and we talk about the Live in Barcelona release. And there were so many excellent bootlegs to come out of Europe courtesy of crystal cat and they really captured the tour really well yeah they did and that's very fortunate as we know under the circumstances not 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 bruce incorporated just the bootleggers all right we're done we'll come back next time we're going to continue with part two we'll also hopefully have coverage of the tour continuing and with that i'll just wrap things up none but the brave is a presentation of evergreen podcasts produced by bull market entertainment On the web, you can find us at nbtbpodcast.com and on Twitter, we're at nbtbpodcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McClain saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.